Dr. Logan Lefkoff encourages honest conversations about sexuality and the role that it plays in our culture as she works to create an environment where people not only feel comfortable asking, but getting answers to their most personal questions. Dr. Logan encourages and empowers children, adolescents, parents, and adults to challenge the impractical and often unhealthy messages that we're too often exposed to. In the second episode of our two-part series with Dr. Logan, we discuss different ways to understand as well as teach consent and developmental phases going into adolescent sexuality. Many of the questions from this episode were, again, inspired by my own conversations and questions I've received, from the definition of consent, how it should be taught, to whether or not we should force children to give family members, for example, a hug or a kiss if they don't want to and what that might subconsciously be teaching them about their own rights over their own bodies early on. As far as consent goes, it was also inspired by my own belief that if consent is only being taught in the landscape of sex, then it's far too late. I often wonder if practicing saying no to uncomfortable situations early on, perhaps something as simple as saying no to playdates you don't want to have, instead of saying yes just because you don't want to hurt somebody's feelings as a child if those could provide formative skills that might translate later on into feeling comfortable saying no to things like drinks with a creepy coworker, for example, not to mention countless other examples and situations. A lot of times the funny stuff, as you mentioned, or, or overcoming the awkwardness or it not even becoming awkward, but having those other things in there kind of is what makes it perfect you mentioned consent and how it's so important but unfortunately is like besides stds and not getting pregnant kind of the only basis of sex education in its current state one of the things that i feel is important too though is it seems like even with consent we teach it in context we teach it in the context of sex Huge mistake. And so for <laughs> me, I just don't understand that if people haven't been taught consent and don't know how to say, you know, later on, no to going out to drinks with, you know, their boss when they know it's not just a meeting or no to all these other things. Or as a kid practicing saying, oh, you don't have to go over to a play date at your friend's house. You can say no. You, you don't have to go just because you feel bad. Right. It, it's funny you say that because when I do parent talks, I say quite often that our biggest mistake is that we make consent only about sexual behaviors. Uh, instead of focusing on how many times our young people are using the language of consent all the time. So at school, I'll ask my students, how did you ask for consent today? And they'll say, I asked if I could go get some water at the fountain. I said, exactly. You said, may I go get a glass of water? And you hear the answer, and the answer is either going to be yes or no, and you have to deal with whatever the answer is. You know, in, a, in our home, you know, if my daughter is using my son's Xbox, I'll say, <laughs> you know, did you get his permission first? And if the answer is yes, awesome. If the answer is no, she has to say, you know, may I use your Xbox and, and hear the hear and understand and be okay with the answer. So we practice it all of the time and also about bodies, right? That if I, you know, am getting a hug or someone is, you know, if my kid is like hitting me on the butt, I'll say, you know, did you ask me for my permission? <laughs> <laughs> and it there was one moment where my daughter must have been 
she must have been three. And my husband came home and, you know, she was walking around in her underwear and he like pinched her on the tush. And she looked back and said, Daddy, you did not ask me for my permission to squeeze my tush. <laughs> and I like I had this like breakthrough moment. Oh, my God, the language, it's there, right? And he said to her, you know what, honey? I am so sorry. You are absolutely right. May I please squeeze your tush? And she looked at him and said, yes, you may. <laughs> and it was what was so important about it was not just that she was using the language, but that when we mess up or do something that we shouldn't do, we take responsibility right away, you know, apologize. And and obviously, you know, squeezing your daughter's tush is a lot different than, you know, a, a sexual act that's, that's you know, coerced or pressured in some way. So I'm not suggesting those are equivalencies, but, but saying, I, you know, I'm sorry I did something wrong. I want to fix it and do it the right way is really powerful. Because again, it goes back to our first conversation, right? Which is modeling for young people how things should be done so that they have this encyclopedia in their head of, oh, this is how I this is how I give a meaningful apology or this is how I ask. And I I I think that a question maybe a lot of people would have is that because kind of cultivating intimacy is that combination of an emotional aspect but mixed with the physical aspect um an example would be like hugs when you know you want to a grandparent for example when you say you know give grandma <laughs> oh, or grandpa yes. a kiss or a hug but the thing is or with the parents if you know you kind of need that in the early years the touch and the physical closeness to be able to cultivate intimacy but if you have a child who maybe just says no because they feel like it or um you know you also want to make sure you're giving your kids the opportunity to feel that closeness so it'll be reinforced later on so I it just, is the I, most I don't want to mix up my yeah, words no but, but yeah. it is the most complicated caregiving parenting issue which is really you want your kids to have some advocacy for themselves and to speak up and if they you know and not force them or pressure them into giving someone a hug or kiss right because if we keep falling prey to doing something because someone's asked we become teenagers and then adults who you know avoid the discomfort and just do things right which we don't want and sometimes it means telling your parents that you are teaching your kids to advocate for themselves and they may not necessarily want to give you a hug and they have to be okay with that. And that is a really hard thing for a lot of people to do. I try and, and do it now. I have a, a almost two-year-old nephew and sometimes I'll want to run up and say, give me a kiss. you know, And I'll stop myself now and say, I would love a kiss, but you don't have to give me one if you don't want to, <laughs> right? right? You know, and sometimes he won't, and I'm really cool with that because it's his call, and mm. and he should know that it's always going to be his call. And so, from that young, very young age, yeah. But okay. you have to be the type okay. of person who doesn't take it personally mm. if a kid doesn't want to hug you, and it doesn't mean they don't love you and adore you. It just means that right now they don't feel like hugging. Yeah, right. I and that's even a imagine tough how hard thing. Like going to bed, because then it's people have to, you know, you're asking all the time, and then not wanting to create 
barriers where it's like the only time we can touch is if there's this like step first yeah that but is we can so say before our bed would you like a yeah. kiss good night yeah, would you yeah. like a hug right and and they'll be very clear and and especially at bedtime well, most kids yeah. want that or and want that touch, just right? Being, if you haven't seen somebody at the airport, like being able to run up and not. And it's also about reading body language cues, yeah. right? And that's the problem is that we have a really hard time <laughs> reading cues all in my classes. <laughs> and I'll then if verbal is only taught but not nonverbal, which right. let's be real, all of sex is Mo- a lot of it is is nonverbal. A lot, and and it is really it, it is really it, it's certainly important the nonverbal communication. But especially if you're starting young people on a path to to practice asking, then the verbal becomes really important because I'll I'll do this thing where I'll stand in front of someone and we'll use holding hands as mm-hmm. a you know as an example, and I'll pretend like I'm holding someone's hand. Um, I'll stand in the front of the room and I'll like stick my hand out and I'll make this like very like crazy like half smile half terrified face, and I'll say someone just grabbed someone just grabbed my hand. What what's my face for? Mm-hmm. And they'll say you absolutely don't want your hand held. I said that's a possibility. What else? They'll say you're super excited about holding hands with someone. I said also a possibility. And someone will say you really like this person, but you're sort of terrified because you don't know what to do next. I'm like that also a possibility. I said so now you have three possibilities from one face, right? And there could be plenty more. And you see, start to see really how very complicated it is to solely rely on body language and nonverbal cues. And again, you know, look, you know, there's there's obviously tremendous diversity to all people. Yeah. So some people can't verbally speak, right? So, yeah. but we have to make sure we can come up with tools that that make the nonverbal um, cues really clear, mm-hmm. right, and understood by the other person. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people have been mentioning the TV show Sex Education on Netflix and uh, the mother who is a sex therapist and kind of I think a lot of people watch that and think, well, I wouldn't have had so many problems. if I." <laughs> <laughs> um, so I guess if you have any any thoughts on that show or beyond that too, the ways in which media I've even noticed in some of these movies and. Uh, a lot of these like new age rom-coms where it shows the high school and it's like the cool teacher using gender pronouns and talking about sex and I'm like is that a thing now? I don't know (laughs) if that's in real life Um, but also I didn't go to that high school and it would have been it would have been helpful for even somebody to just say the word sex Um, so yeah maybe some of the ways that media is kind of coming out with this new wave and trying to be a more positive resource. Yes, absolutely. So I have not watched the full season of Sex Education, though I have to say there are elements of it that I really love, which is you know young people acknowledging that they're sexual beings, that pleasure is absolutely a part of sex, that there is a great diversity in how we identify and express ourselves and who we're attracted to. Uh, that is super exciting for me. And also to recognize that adolescent sexuality isn't just about seeking pleasure. It's also about seeking emotional intimacy, too. That you see an entire spectrum of why and how people are engaging in any any and all type of sex, which is how it is in real life, right? I mean, we're not just seeking one thing. And 
depending on who our partners are, we might be seeking multiple things or, yeah. or nothing at all. And all of it is okay, right? If everyone is on the same page. So that's a really positive, I think, positive change for how we see adolescence. Uh, I also am <laughs> obsessed with Big Mouth as just this insane animated look at kids in puberty. And, you know, it is it is certainly explicit and graphic, <laughs> but I think it's a, a really... I'll give you an example. In this, in the second episode, the third one of the the she's twelve and she gets her period in a pair of white shorts that her mother made her wear on a field trip to the Statue of Liberty, and you see this girl in her white shorts and you see the red stain at the back of the shorts and it's all animated, but we've had those experiences, but you never actually mm-hmm. see them. And she, you know, she actually winds up confiding in a boy in her grade to help her find like something that she could use as a pad. And it's this super raw, but you feel for the two of them. You understand what that experience is like. And I loved that she had to have a male help her out and that he could be a sounding board even if he was confused and like shocked by the whole thing and have the emotional intellect and maturity to like what a magical world yeah i mean i mean now granted he like did bring her i want to say it was like a 9 11 towel like commemorative towel that was you know so obviously park makes yeah i mean it's yes it's it's completely comedic right but there are elements of it that i think that we could reinforce how silly you know we could we could you, you know we certainly could use in 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 doses um but i love the idea that our media is pushing the boundaries and representing diversity and sexuality and gender um because it's important and that's what our world looks like so our media really should reflect that representation matters right whether Mm -hmm. it's racial or ethnic or sexual um or religious you know we all Mm -hmm. exist here on this planet so our experiences should be represented too Mm -hmm. So you touched on how it's more that adolescent age. And so as we talked kind of about the the younger years, there's at some point this transition to adolescent sexuality or emotional education and, and intimacy education. And kind of at what point does that happen and how to navigate that, which I'm sure might be different for different people depending on their m- maturity and whatnot. But there's a struggle between so many themes. Um, you know, stuff goes from not being as big of a deal to becoming a really big deal in, in the way that you talk about in the themes you're dealing with. But also, for example, like even the balance between how to talk about sex as making sure people understand it's a big deal, but then also not making a huge <laughs> deal about it. Yes. Adolescence is complicated because... We have a tendency once people look like they're sexual beings, once they've experienced puberty, whether or not they finished it or not, we as adults do this weird thing where we start to treat them differently and we assume that just because someone has breasts or pubic hair, like they're a grown up, right? And you start to see it in particular with girls and what happens, especially with adults, especially adult males in their life where all of a sudden they'll stop hugging because they're afraid like breasts are going to get in the way, right? Which is really 
so sad because girls really do need those male role models and those adults not to treat them differently, not to make them feel worse about the fact that people are looking at them differently. So that that's a, a, a part of it. The other thing is, and I get this question all of the time, about at what age should we do whatever it is? And the answer is always Age has never been the sole determinant of someone's ability to make a good decision about any type of sexual behavior. I mean, there are some teenagers who make amazing, beautiful, thoughtful decisions about sex and relationships, and there are some adults that do a really shitty job, right? So it is certainly not solely about age. The only difference is the younger you are, the harder it is to manage the responsibilities that come with exploring, mm-hmm. you know, certain sex behaviors. And not necessarily just the the, you know, the most obvious ones like, you know, a, a potential for pregnancy or STIs, but the things about the changing dynamics of a relationship when you've shared your body with someone, right? How mm-hmm. other people perceive you. Mm-hmm. How do you navigate that transition in a relationship? Like those are the tougher things um, that we often don't don't talk about. But the transition is different for for all for all people, but it is an important transition. And I, I'm afraid that we've forgotten how how important and positive understanding your sexuality is for teenagers. It is such a huge part of growing up. I have very fond and overwhelming memories of all of the times I thought I fell in love and maybe it was lust and that I had all these things that I wanted to do and I didn't know what to do with all of these you know, burgeoning feelings. Um, and our young people are doing that too. They have the same things, but sometimes it's been so long for us we forget how raw and emotional that stuff is and what we do often in an attempt to sort of like tamp down all of those like big feelings is we say like these really silly things like oh there are plenty of fish in the sea and you'll get over it and you weren't going to wind up with this person in the long run and you know it may be with the best of intentions but it Mm -hmm. doesn't really acknowledge how overwhelming all of those feelings really are that's such a good point and and that the difference in like the capacity to deal to deal with the consequences is so so different and I think there's so much time spent on like the preparation for you know whether it's puberty or becoming sexually active or or whatnot um and then it just goes up until that point versus how to get through a breakup or as you mentioned right. that amazing point of how relationships change when you you shared your body with somebody and yeah and also just the the and and it sort of gets back to to sexuality education or or more formal sex ed which is the this it drives me crazy when we focus so much on teaching people how to say no to something which i find is a really silly skill to have unless you're going to teach people how and when to say yes to something. Mm -hmm. The idea that we only talk about the no without acknowledging that at some point people are going to want to make the decision to say yes. That will be the right decision. And they have to think about how how that happens, how to say yes in a way yeah. that's understood, and also when to. Like at what point in a relationship? What should mm-hmm. that dynamic look like? Mm-hmm. What should a what qualities should you and a partner have as opposed to just assuming that the answer is always going to be no until some arbitrary, like magical age or, you know, state or stage in life, which is silly. For some reason it just reminded me of when people 
ask like how do you know if you've had an orgasm there are all these things where unless you teach also the positive the like this is what it feels like when you want to say yes if you just teach the no and there's no context of the other side you're like but I don't want to say no but that just means it's a yes then versus and this is what yes feels like and this is what an an orgasm also feels like so you know when you actually do or do not have one (laughs) right I mean to be one-sided is is really just unhelpful right because at some point people do make decisions at some point someone has an experience and they they should know what those things I mean you you know, you'll never really be able to explain to someone what an orgasm yeah, feels yeah, like yeah, to was, them. But, yeah. you know, you you should know that there is a lead up and there, there are things that are going to happen in your body. And this is what that's leading to. Yeah. But oftentimes sexual response is often missing from sex ed, which is really interesting because we really have no problem talking about it when it has to do with assigned male puberty. And we talk about erections and wet dreams and ejaculation. Mm-hmm. Right. Whereas if we're talking, I mean, let's just acknowledge that the, the the idea of being intersex is often omitted entirely from conversations about puberty and growing up. So that's, you know, a, a, a huge issue that I think and an inequity that's that we should do a better job at. But also the idea that when we talk about, you know, assigned female puberty, it is really and specifically about one's reproductive potential as opposed to talking about the clitoris and masturbation mm-hmm. and the erectile tissue that's in the clitoris and the clitoral bulbs and that actually bodies aren't really that different. They, they yes. might look a little different, but actually they work fairly similarly. That was one of the uh, most fascinating things I learned when it, it's like, it's all the same. Yeah. It's literally the same with a different setup. Yes, except for the fact that w- with one particular sex we say like your entire existence is based on whether or not you use your uterus you know and the others were like well you can masturbate and white stuff comes out like that's great but it's it's a really um it's certainly not an equitable way of of looking at at sexual development um and also like look some people are not going to want to get pregnant some mm-hmm. people are not going to want to have biological children. Some people don't have the ability to. So if at 9, 10, 11, we're telling, you know, a, a pretty large percent of the population, no, actually, this is this is yours and you own reproductive potential. I don't know. It just it, it never really felt right to me. Yeah. And I wonder then, too, if men, uh, boys would then feel more empowered to own kind of reproductive reproductive potential or identify more with like the process that goes into it not seeing that as like and the woman decides if we will have babies or not right. I don't know yeah that it, that it's just about, well it, it goes back to that whole like you're supposed to, to you know sow your wild oats seed everywhere yeah. and like you you yeah. know shut your legs until the right time yeah Right. That's that just reinforces that really old, ugly double standard, which is really my reason for getting up every morning to to fight that. That's that's really the only yeah. reason I get up. Yeah. What are some of the other kind of the the battles that we're fighting in terms of these things? <laughs> oh God, and the, I mean, the long list. <laughs> uh, uh, that's yeah. Yeah. It, that's, it feels like there is it feels like there is so much certainly reproductive choice sex ed um equity in the you know trans non-binary you know the the full lgbtq rights um you know we have some really great advances too which is 
you know, states now making it an optional to have a, a non-binary um, gender identification on birth certificates. Like, so we we are making some steps, but it just seems like for all of those, we keep having some really old, ugly debates that are really based in, I mean, just to be completely honest, lies. Mm-hmm. Lies about how women's bodies work, lies about how, when, and why people choose to terminate a pregnancy as if these are arbitrary decisions that people with uteruses just randomly make because we're horrible people. Um, I, I cannot even believe that it's 2019 and we still have those conversations today. Yeah. You, uh, going back earlier, for example, how relationships change after sharing your body, some of these things that are probably a lot of people maybe don't think about what would be some other examples of that or for example with adolescents these kind of new conversations that maybe didn't exist before uh, about sexting (laughs) oh sexting um the one thing I will say and I I talk through this a lot with adults and parents and caregivers is because inevitably they will ask that question like what if they're sexting now there are real potentially negative outcomes to sending digital pictures and images or videos of yourself or you know someone else underage you know naked or sexual like for sure big legal implications because our laws have not caught up with technology yet and also just problems in terms of social dynamics once things become public for sure but the why people do this is a really interesting thing and one of the things i'll say to to adults who seem to think that we are also beyond doing that yeah. right is i would like to remind you what we all did when we were that age so uh, to be perfectly candid when i was a teenager we had those instead of not like the aol chat rooms but we had the chat phone lines where we would call these like uh, they were definitely not 1-800. They were absolutely like $3 a minute and you would get this crazy bill at the end of the month and you'd have to tell your parents like some horrible thing that you did on the phone. Um, where all these people would be on a phone line, you had no idea who they were and we would all use it to say like, my name is Daisy and I have 36 quadruple D breasts. And, I, and we absolutely said all of the things right about our bodies which were clear i mean if you you're looking at me that is clearly not a description <laughs> of my body but so i'm sure you sounded like a child well maybe but so would, but so did everyone else right yeah. so no one really knew the difference but it was our way of using the technology available to us to express our sexuality and test certain boundaries out without actually having to do something physical Right, which is really no different from wanting to use your phones for the same purpose. The only difference is there is no anonymity. And the the long-term impact is a lot more real, whereas when you were calling this phone with like 40 other teenagers, there was a sense of privacy. Yeah. You know, no one was gonna come find you. The only people there were like your girlfriend sitting next to you <laughs> and doing this too with you. So and it felt safe. It did. The, the perception was that it was safe. And and one of the things that I think that parents get wrong is that we assume that our kids, A, are, are smarter than they are is not really the right word because they are smart. But, but 
they don't necessarily understand long-term implications the way we do. And when someone says to me, well, I thought my kid knew better, I said, and I'll say, well, did you ever explicitly say you are not allowed to take pictures of you or your friends naked with your phone? They'll say to me, no, I never said that. I said, well, then how are, how are they supposed to know what your expectations are? Because you weren't clear with them. Be clear. I mean, mm-hmm. if we're clear, then they'll know, right? But And that doesn't mean they won't try to push boundaries because they will and they're teenagers, but at least they'll know what your expectations are. Right, and really just going back to what you had said before about the capacity to deal with the consequences, which you can't build up until you're aware of them. So obviously there are people at later ages and it's an activity that is like normalized later or people at least know what the consequences is. Doesn't mean they don't want to send that content or don't engage in it either. Um, it's more just making sure it's under the right circumstances and that people are at least aware aware of the yeah, consequences. And it's, and it's about evaluating your partnerships. I mean, yeah. because... A good lesson. For, for me, I, I really believe that, especially as a, as a minor, no good partner asks you to take that big of a risk, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the risks are just right. too... You know this, if you loved me, you'd send me a naked photo. Like, mm. if you're underage, that's not someone who really respects you and has your best interest at heart because Mm-mm. the risks are too high, right? I mean, as adults, you can absolutely make those decisions, right? But but thinking about what kind of partner you have, how you trust that person, is this someone who not only has your best interest at heart, but if for some reason your relationship breaks up, what do you do with that content? And right. how is that content used? Right. And that's the great unknown, Right, it's hard enough for adults to handle that. Mm-hmm. A sixteen-year-old is has a has many a challenge, especially if the the teenage culture is one where we slut shame and you know perpetuate the double yeah. standard. Yeah, and we don't hold people accountable equally. Yeah, I love that teaching these lessons through kind of recognizing trust in a way. Yeah, I mean, it, it because all of those things either make sense or they don't make sense depending on the type of relationship that you have and I always tell my teenage students you know when I use the word relationship I'm not talking about like capital R long-term monogamous we're getting married relationship any interaction with someone whether it's for a night or a week or you know (laughs) whatever that that's a it's a relationship. It is a connection <laughs> between two people, mm-hmm. whether there's emotion attached or not. So it's important to know that in each of these situations, what are the things we need to be thinking about? And and what are things that, mi- I mean, may in reality be too risky with, you know, the partner that we're, we're with? What would be you know, either some some actionable advice or specific insight or behaviors that you would maybe share with some listeners who might be kind of in that young formative, be it, you know, middle school, but through college. Younger listeners, I would say, first, to think about who you are. What do you want out of your body out of a relationship, out of a partnership, and know that whatever that is, that's okay, right? It's okay to not want a relationship, capital R. Mm -hmm. It's okay to want to experiment. It's okay to want your body to feel certain things. But, But think about it first, right? What is it that we want? Because oftentimes, and it's really a lesson for adults too, we go into relationships 
And at some point we say, oh, this isn't what I want, but we actually never even knew what we wanted because we never gave our, give up, we never gave ourselves the freedom to think about it in the first place. And then I think it's okay also to, as I said earlier, own the awkward. Don't be afraid to be uncomfortable or awkward because that goes with the territory. That's part of growing up. Even if you've been with someone hundreds of times, having conversations about sex and pleasure and sexual health and condoms and getting tested for STIs, like that doesn't ever get not awkward. It just, you just get used to the fact that it's awkward, right? So I think that those are my my big, big actionable steps. And also just to know that whoever you are is who you are supposed to be and that you don't have to fit into some unrealistic paradigm because that's what you see, right? There, There is no way that we can ever be fulfilled if we're trying to fit into someone else's definition of what a sexy sexual person is. But that was an amazing last point that you can't look kind of de- to define yourself in somebody else or to define yourself by what you think somebody else is looking for. And thank you for joining us today and helping us learn how to embrace the awkward <laughs> and the magic of the awkward. The magic of the awkward. Yes. Well, it, it was my pleasure. Thank you for interviewing me. Thank you for making this an important subject. Thank you so much for tuning in to listen to the BBXX podcast. You can learn more on our website or on our social media at bbxx.world. And if you believe in what we're doing, please do help spread the love by sharing this with someone you care about. Until next time. Oh,